This is Inside the Writer's Head. In this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers, book lovers, and creatives of all kinds. Your host, Manuel Iris, is a Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library's Writer-in-Residence for 2023. The Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, creativity, and literacy, while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Hello, welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. My name is Manuel Iris. I am the 2023 Writer-in-Residence of the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library and the Library Foundation. This is a very special episode for me since it's the last one that I host as the end of my tenure of Writer-in-Residence is coming. I have the honor of having this final conversation with a poet that I read and I admire. Her name is Fiona Sampson. She is a leading British poet and writer. Published in 38 languages, she's the author of 29 books. Among her national honors is included an MBE for services to literature. For the American audience, I have to say that MBE means that she is a member of the most excellent order of the British Empire, which is a very, very high honor in England. She has received numerous awards of the Arts Council of England and Wales, the Society of Authors, Poetry Book Society, and Arts and Humanities Research Council, and several Book of the Year selections. She has been a finalist multiple times for the T.S. Eliot and Forward Prizes. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, of the British Trust for Literary Romanticism, and of the English Association, and formerly of the Royal Society of Arts. She has won poetry prizes in the US, Bosnia, India, and North Macedonia. She is a trustee of the Royal Literary Fund and an emeritus professor of poetry of the University of Roehampton. I'm gonna stop here, but the list of her accomplishments is much, much longer. Thank you, Fiona, for being here with us in Inside the Writer's Head. I am very excited to have you here. And thank you also for joining uh, from England. This is our first international collaboration in the in the podcast. So thank you. Oh, so thank you, Manuel. Yeah, it's a joy to be there in Cincinnati, to be there in Cincinnati. And um, I'm very honored if I'm the first of your international colleagues. That's even better. I want to, and, and I want our readers and, and our listeners to know that I am a reader of your work and that your work has, um, for me, many qualities that are now very rare in poetry. It is a poetry, it, it is a, you are a poet of observation, you're a poet of contemplation, you're a poet of slowness, you're a poet that is trying to make us slow down and see things and uh, you articulate things in a way that forces, uh, even, even in the actual writing on the page, you force uh, the reader to slow down, to go back, to reread, um, to say, uh, did I read this right? Is this what she meant? Is this what the poem means? And you are not trying to pull the reader into the vertigo of this fast-paced poetry. Um, all of the other, all, 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 
exactly the opposite. And mm. maybe this has to do with the fact that you were a musician first. Um, can you tell us about this beginning of you in music and how did you realize that you also were a poet and then the poet took over? Thank you, Manuel. Thank you. That's a, those are really lovely things to say. I think I, I mean, you're absolutely right. I think, I think the poetry in general for me is about slowing down. Um, we were just talking about your daughter learning to read. And I remember learning to read as very much learning to read words and sentences all at once. I was very fast. I mean, I'm a very fast reader of prose. I'm a, almost a skim reader. I'm a speed reader. And poetry, I think, calls to me, calls to all of us to read in a different way, to sort of not see the destination of the words in terms of something understood, a story got, uh, a piece of information shared, but to participate in the language as it occurs, as it happens, in effect, word by word. Um, I mean, the joy of poetry for me is often it's plurality, which doesn't have to be punning. You don't have to be a Les Murray, although I admire him enormously, but there is a sense of a multiplicity of things always going on in a poem, anybody's poem. You know, there is stuff to do with sound, stuff to do with pleasure, stuff to do with emotion, but also reflection, intellection. And in those ways, I think the poetry is really, really close to the moment of experience. And I am going to come back to what you were saying about music in just a moment. But the other thing I think that's been a huge influence on me is that after I stopped being a violinist, um, among other things, I then went to Oxford and read politics and philosophy. It was a kind of accident. I wanted to do, do English literature and I did, but it was the time of the theory wars. Critical theory was fighting against uh, uh, practical criticism, close reading, and I adored it all. And I was lost and it was really, I felt really torn apart by these savage struggles over stuff that I loved, i.e. texts, i.e. for example, poetry. So I did philosophy and um, I became immensely interested in the in the way that the actual moment of experience can never be articulated because the moment you articulate it, it's gone. You, you know, the moment it kind of, to put it into words is uh, is not only to pin the butterfly, it's also to, it's a moment of decay but the kind of vibrancy of being alive is um, this extraordinarily absolutely micro fleeting point, this kind of glowing cursor going through time. And um, living is obviously a chronologic art. And so are poetry and music. They go through time. Um, I was at a, um, a poetry festival in Romania and we went to Intimashwara and we went to um, the local museum where there were a lot of icons and um, a religious, a nun took us around the the icons, the who were obviously in a way ripped out of their uh, original context, but they were very, um, very sympathetically displayed, although in rather an old fashioned way. And uh, um, she talked about how an icon is lives in time because it isn't just a representation or a piece of art. It isn't about the surface form. It's the time that the contemplation that it draws out of you takes. And she said that she talked about chronologic and simultaneous arts. And most visual art, of course, is just simultaneous. 
but life and poetry and music are chronological unless you surrender to the time they take you don't have the experience you can't listen to a piece of music all at once kind of crunched together it would be a huge discord wouldn't it you you listen to it play out through time even for the three minute song it's the same with poetry for me and I wonder whether what you are also suggesting I might do is perhaps read you one of the poems from my first book which was called Folding the Reel it's a very stupid and difficult title for a it's stupid because difficult title for a poetry collection but what I was sort of reaching to and I found the collection really 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 hard to title I always find titles very hard I don't know if you do but uh, um, I was trying to think about sort of being reflexive, thinking about the moment of reality while you're in it, which is already a doubling. So I was thinking about a pleat. Um, and there was a set of uh, syllabic sonnets. So um, 14 lines, 14 syllables to a line, all one sentence, each of them. And there were 14 of them. Um, and... The one I think I'll read you is the title poem because it's it's well because it's it's folded the wheel is also about playing the violin, and um, the little sort of line I've put at the top as an epigraph, but it's not a quotation. It says, "I do not play the violin; the violin plays me." Because when you play a violin, an old violin, it still sounds like the previous person who played it. It's very strange. So you're sort of ghosted. It's it's inhabited. It's a trace, as Derrida would say. But we talk about the voice of the poet and the voice of the violin, folding the reel. The voice, that print of self, which is already in the unmade sound, which is in the ear, or comes up to meet the sound you make, the belly another voice box to mirror your own, intimate with the kind of knowledge you didn't mean to let slip. The hair, a tain, dividing, uniting, the sound you will make and the one already made, the sound waiting with the one actualizing, being in the spacious way of waves, moving out to something more, endlessly spreading and branching in a tree of pitches, knocking out the ends of the possible a little, while the given is a folding over into itself, is repetition, registering the possible and what's beyond it, and drawing up to the surface, up through the wood and wire and stain, the print of self, that is, of what is. I know it's a very complicated poem, and that sense of, you know, the human body and the violin's body and what has been and what will be and the, the way that you are, you always experience, receive experience through preconception. They're all, they are all layered on top of each other. Like a kind of, it's a palimpsest poem, really, isn't it? Yes, but 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 in this sense, it is a palimpsest poem because reality is palimpsestic in that way, and, yes. and there is no other way to. to what what what, what um, interests me of this poem when I read it is that is such the, the subject of the poem is is multiple and therefore is so complicated, yet the poem is very short. Mm. Um you 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 try to say this is 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 like one punch that keeps, however, going there. This is a poem to be reread several times. It's not a poem. Text, yes. 
There's a technique in violin playing, well, all music called legato, which moves smoothly. And you know the violin, you have a bow, it's about so long. And when you get, when you run out of bow, there's a bow change, it changes direction, which is a little bit like a line break. And you are always in legato trying to enjamb, not hear the, or like a breath taken, you're trying to not hear that. And there are various techniques for doing that. And definitely when I was writing that poem, I can remember when I read it, um, there's a sense of trying to do the legato, drawing out a single strain of, a single strand of sound without one hearing the breath taken or the bow change. Now, this is also not one of your latest poems. Hmm. This, is, this is a poem by uh, Fiona Sampson several years ago. Yeah, and a long time ago. I've noticed that your poetry has been taking a journey towards simplicity, too. Absolutely. Here we have the voice in the poem is very in the action of the poem. You are very present in the poem. But but I've, I've read um, more recent poems where you seem to be far from whatever is being contemplated. And there is this reflection over everything that is happening, that is happening there. It is mm -hmm. happening to you too. You are, you are part of the observation, but you're not in the, in the midst of it. Yes. How, how has been this, this, this trend? Yeah. Does this mean a change in poetics or just a change in, um, uh, in, in 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 the position that you take well mm. look is, is this is this is this a change only in um your perspective yes it's sort of both isn't it i mean i i think my poetics have been um have been on a journey i think that um i i was never someone who came into poetry thinking as i think actually in the Anglosphere, a lot of, I have to say, young male poets do come in as part of a school or a coterie and feel that one only one poetics is true and the rest is all nonsense. You know, there are lots of poetry wars in Britain which are poetics-based as well as personality-based, and I'm sure that's true. Well, no, that's true sort of everywhere. I have always thought there was amazing poetry in lots and lots of different forms and like you I'm very curious about international poetry poetry of the past poetry you know that's not I don't think it's irrelevant to me if it's not written in in Britain in 2023 you know so I've always been looking for um poetics as a kind of as an enabling device as a structure that would let well actually would let that single string of stream of sound it's not a string and it's not a stream it's not a ray, I don't know what it is, but a single line of sound, single line of thought, but it's the line of beauty, isn't it, would um, to <clears throat> to emerge. And for a long time after each uh, poetry collection, I kind of changed my poetics because I didn't just want to kind of fall into a, oh, here's a repetition of something. I know how to do a number of this. Um, so the book after Folding the Veal was um, a verse novel, very, very different, very long, so sort of six long chapter poems then there were various other 
collections where I was kind of moving between forms and I was quite lapidary and quite um sometimes quite intellectual and I think we'll come back to that maybe um but my last two collections and the poems I'm writing now are all one sentence one breath all one breath poems and they're, they're, it's clearly a process of distillation. I mean, just as life is a process of distillation, you know, once if there's any getting of wisdom, I hope it's a kind of distillation, you know. So they are, first of all, I got rid of punctuation and just use lineation and grammar to pivot the sense of a poem, even if a poem is long. So like my last collection, Come Down, has a, the title poem is, I don't know, like eight pages long and it's all one sentence, you know, um, as you know very well. Um, but... Um, I want, I have this notion of a poem as, as, as a kind of lucidity, um, as a kind of almost abstract, like a kind of piece of colored glass. And I always have that feeling. It's one of the things I like about your poetry very much, that kind of sense of the absolute, the, the, of your absolute integrity. The, the poem fills itself up to its edges. There's no if I say there's no virtuosity, I don't mean that you don't have supreme technical control. I mean that just like there's no showing off, there's no pirouettes, there's nothing baroque. The poem is completely itself up to the edge of itself. But it needs to like be. A, yes, exactly. And, you know, English is such a, a fun language to play with, so layered and comes from so many sources and it's so susceptible to the baroque and so on and that trying to discipline myself almost like a kind of spiritual pro progression and get rid of that mm -hmm. and distill is um what i've been trying to do in the last collections and um a poem i'd like to to read maybe to share with you to sort of show this is um actually a poem that's not yet well it's in a it's in a new selected but it's not yet in a collection um and it's a poem about um well, it's a poem for, it's an in memoriam for the Estonian poet Jan Kaplinski, who was the Estonian nobilizable, who is a poet who absolutely was like this. I mean, he was, as a young man, he was a formalist, and then suddenly he became a free verse poet. Um, and, you know, a kind of poet of reflection, observation of wildlife. I mean, slightly Buddhist, although there he is in Estonia, you know, and I had the great privilege to co-translate with him two of his books and it was he who said of my poems they're language bound when he translated me reciprocally oh. you know in other words there's too much of their work is in their language rather than something beyond the language so this is um he died about two years ago and so this is at Mukitu, which is his farmhouse in the birch woods of estonia so at Mukitu, in memoriam jan kaplinski and it has a reference to Sappho and, you know, Sappho's, the line from Sappho, which is um, evening star, you bring back everything, the bright dawn scattered, you know, the lamb to the shepherd and so on, because that was the epigraph of one of the books we translated. Advocate two. What's here now when I come like Yan's sheep, like Sappho's lamb, stepping down into the valley as the bright Evening light slips and pools beside a wall along the water with the gnats and water skimmers bright and dark, falling across the stepping shoulders of the careful beast, so quiet, so inevitable little lamb of death. 
calling the poet home, although he called you first, into the clearing with the pond, the long-armed well, the barn swallows. And in the dark, the nightingales sing inexhaustibly about the forest going on forever beyond the fence rail, as poets do, singing in darkness, up among the wooden beams of habitation, while the lamb comes to lie down at the threshold, comes gently to your feet, Jan. I didn't call him here. This poem, the breath of this poem, and the perspective of this poem is so different from the one that you read before. Yes. All, all of the things that have happened, and, and, and yet there is your style. There yeah. is an isn't, isn't there? Yes. Like both poems are also, when you said um, that the poem is a moment of lucidity, that that to me made clear many things about your poetry. And because there is always the search or or the um, denunciation of, of some sort of an epiphany. Mm. Like there is a moment of clarity, even if that moment of clarity is very brief because mm. it's, it's fading. Yes. You know, it, it, yes. This is what I saw in this one second. And these are the things that I was thinking yes. in, in, in this one second. I am still thinking, Fiona, about this bow change that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. But how to keep that breath, mm. that one line, or or at least to keep the illusion that is one mm. breath. Absolutely. That Absolutely. is one infinite bow. Yes, exactly. One infinite bow, lovely line, yeah. How, I'm willing, yeah, go on. How has this, would you think that that happens from one book to another, from one. Uh, I think it happened with my last two books. I think the catch and then come down of all one breath. And I think to some extent, the poems I'm writing now are also still traveling in that direction. So yes, but, and I definitely think of a book as a through composed thing. I definitely write in books even though, as we all do, and as we were talking about earlier, you know, publish poems in journals or anthologies or whatever along the way. I definitely, I read poets for bodies of work. I read poets book by book rather than single poem by single poem. And I I don't mean I don't enjoy journals, but, you know, I mean, I, I when I find a poem poet I like, I, wa I want to relax into the space of a book and I want the book is definitely an experience. I mean, as one was always saying to one's students, you know, it's, it needs ordering the way in the old days people used to order an album, you know, of songs. I mean, it's a, it's an experience, even though one might not read it in order at all, but there's something about a world that's created or a tonal world that's created and actually holding that space is quite hard, isn't it? Because the other thing, I mean, something I'm always aware of and I'm particularly aware of right now because I've got a cold, as we were also saying I mean, is that I don't I don't have a lot of breath, um, and I can't actually write in five stress lines because I don't have the breath to sustain them, and I therefore that's not my speech rhythm, and therefore imaginatively I don't think in 
I don't think in pentameter. I think in shorter, well, you can hear the way I talk. I, t I think and talk. I am in shorter phrases. Um, and yet you could say, well, yeah, but if you're, if you're writing all one breath poems, you know, that's a tremendous, how, how have you got the breath for that? But the sort of seesaw alternation of the line ends to kind of move you down through the poem is somehow different from a strict meter, which a strict meter, for example, which can feel quite policing of your breath. I don't know. I mean, we, people playing wind instruments talk about circular breathing, don't they? So that, you know, they're breathing in through their nose so that actually they, they don't run out of breath when they're playing a long passage. That's another technique. When I read your poems, especially the poems in the last two books, it does feel like an exercise of um, sometimes it's an exercise of like scuba diving into silence. When mm. I'm going to read the poem, I hold my breath and I read the poem and the poems are short enough that I will not uh, drown. You know, mm. I come back to the surface, mm. to the silence, and then I go into mm. the next poem. But, the, but these are not, your poems don't fill me with words. They stop me before the words, so I can see, you know, the landscape that we were talking about. There, there is such an importance on on this on this particular landscape. It's not the city landscape. It's not the cars. It's not the airplanes. It's not the big buildings. It's not the noise of the city. It's this um, very different romantic um, landscape. Um, in, in I also think. Sense of respiration, this sense of breathing. Mm. I'm, I'm just thinking out loud about, yeah, no. about your poem. I think, absolutely. Thank you, Mona. It's really, really interesting because I think the other thing is that um, I want the words actually to be working very, very hard. So I, I, you know, I use a lot of assonance. I use a lot of ways to kind of clear away the clutter of language so you don't hear the but, but, but of the individual words. You, you know, obviously vowels are what carry the breath, aren't they, with consonants kind of clatter <laughs> and chop up breath. And um, so there's a lot of that. And also, of course, it's accentual verse, so that um, it's stri in strict form in the sense that there are regular number of stresses per line, but those stresses are not regular metrical feet. So they're like speech rhythms. So they might be iams or trochees or whatever, or spondees or whatever, all shuffled together in the way our spoken language is. So that too is a naturalization of sitting on the breath, but there are regular number of stresses per line. So there's a sort of secret coherence. And like everybody else, I care about lineation so that there are, I never use um, a participle at the end of a line. I mean, you always try and use a, a strong word at the end of a line. So there is all that going on, which is rehearsing the passage of the breath. You know, it's like a container for breath. Um, just as the poem you hope is a container for experience in a way. Beautiful way of putting it, because the breath and the experience are there together and they are the other. They are, yes. Yeah, they are the other, yes, exactly. When you, were, when you were saying that you think in books, mm. you write books, mm. when, when did you start writing books instead of writing? Poems. because that I mean 
I, I would imagine that one starts writing poems because there is something happening. Mm -hmm. And then there is a moment when you start writing books because you mm -hmm. want to tell a, a larger experience or different aspects of the same experience. I suspect it was my second book, which is um, The Distance Between Us, which is a verse novel, um, which has this rather wonderful photo of an Italian photo of a train station, um, which is about um, different kinds of human connection, really. Um, it isn't really a verse novel. It's really a set of uh, verse novellas. Um, and each poem has a each poem which is telling a story has an introductory short poem and it's a book that I that changed shape enormously uh, while I was working on it and it and I wrote it at a time when I was doing absolutely maximum amount of you know international travel I mean I was um I had um an arts and humanities research council fellowship which allowed me to um uh not not work for three years and um I write for three years and travel and I set up a magazine which was contemporary writing from post-communist Europe and ran a festival and did lots of things like that. So I was very, very connected with international poets and a lot of this book is really affected by that, really affected by Spanish poetry, by um, by Balkan poetry. So there's a poem called Canticondo and um, yeah, and uh because in a sense I was having a very strong life in poetry at that at that point, you know, in a sense my active, my outdoor life was also poetry, rather as you're experiencing right now. And, you know, and it's and it's lovely and you're very engaged with it. That kind of gave me the architecture in which to not keep sending out individual poems, but to pause and oh, of course, also actually, I forget the fellowship was partly to write a verse novel about um using the archive of refugee clinicians te testimony the welcome archive at Oxford oh. Brooks University so um so there are some stories about long distance migration in it um i'm just wondering what a project with an architecture before the poems it was actually yes but of course i i as one does with any i mean with prose books too you know the book you pitch and the book you end up writing are different from each yes. other if they're going to have artistic integrity you know so um I'm not quite sure what I can read you from that because all the poems in it are quite long. I just even see what I put in the selected because maybe I can read you a little bit. Because it's a book I am very fond of and it's also my book which has been most translated. So at the time I was writing it, all my European friends were, ho, 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 a verse novel, come on, how 19th century. Okay. But actually it had a had a long afterlife. I'm not sure actually I can really read a... Uh, um, a portable bit from it so perhaps we should move on um yeah. there's also some books and correspondence poems in it yeah it's some poem it's a book in which i most played with form I, I'm, I'm still thinking about many things that you said before one of them is this and i'm gonna go back to the notion of of clarity, <clears throat> of lucidity, and mm. how this is contained in one breath. And before that, you said how how everything is fading. How how the poem is uh, talking about 
it, it cannot pin the butterfly. Mm. Um, but it's a, a, a moment of decay of mm. once you utter, once you say the moment, the moment has decayed and, and, and left. Yeah. Yeah. However, however, that is what we do. In your poems, and this is for me very interesting. In your poems, that clarity, that lucidity does not mean an explanation of what things are. The poet is not telling us, this is what life is. This is what I mean. This is what I believe. That lucidity is a lucidity of observation. Is This is what I saw. Or sometimes, this is what I don't know what to do with reality. This is what is happening, and I don't know what to say. I don't know what I should, how, how should I react. I don't know what should I do with it. So sometimes the lucidity is the lucidity of knowing what you don't know, um, yes, which is very yes. different from other poets that are declaring the things yes. that they know, declaring um, what the world is. Um, so th your definition of lucidity is 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 peculiar because it's a, a lucidity of the unknown, yes. it's a lucidity of what you guess. Yes. Well, I think it's because I mean I I. You know, for me, the great poet is Eliot, the Eliot of the quartets. I mean, I for me, it's it's a reaching towards what's inarticulable. To me, the most important um, turning towards is towards the transcendent and the metaphysical. And, you know, it's not that I don't have lots of other things in my life, but poetry is a, the space where I do that. And therefore, I'm always turning towards, you know, the things I don't know. I don't really think I need a poem to tell me that, I don't know, war is bad or family love is good. I, I know those things. I don't need them explained to me. Of course, I'm, I then read poems that do, do that and I'm very drawn up into them and very moved by them and so on. But I, I'm always, it's like you said, I'm always turning towards the other. I can't, here I am talking about me, but I can't, in my poems talk about me i can't say i felt this happened to me i'm always looking out the window i'm looking away from myself and i am always reaching towards i mean to me that you know the you know the reach the human reach towards there being some meaning there being some point to it all is is you know it has tremendous pathos but it's also the thing that is one of the things that unites us um and I don't think it's in any way, you know, a kind of turning away from the world or elite or whatever. I think it's just, just as there are, you know, priests and so on and um, of all kinds, you know, in the world and in all religions and so on. I just think that this is the particular space that my poetry is in. And I'm always sad when people sort of think that, which obviously you very generously are not doing at all, that somehow it's describing the natural world and like, oh, what a nice middle-class kind of leisurely activity. No, to me, it's about the struggle to be, to stay alive actually, because to stay alive without meaning to me seems impossible. I mean, I, that, that to me would, would be despair. I mean, I would, I mean, I think that that is suicidal ideation. I think that, you know, actually we all do, secretly have in our hearts sense you know a sense of meaning i mean you know it's yes. family love or it's you know the dignity human dignity or you know a labor towards some collective cause or 
and they are all the same meaning in a way they're all that there is meaning to there is that dimension to our very short and rather turbulent little lives you know and you know we are the as in the anglo-saxon poem the sparrow you know flying from in one window and out the opposite one of the lighted mead hall i mean we are, we are a light for such a short time and that is only bearable if you believe it's meaningful and you know so we find meaning in this in this space and you know i didn't have a particularly great life <laughs> early on and growing up and you know it was you know pretty abusive and difficult and um for me to stay alive is all about believing that there is meaning that, that there is something if i can't always see myself as dignified as we can't always see ourselves as dignified because we know ourselves too well I can somehow see there is such a thing as dignity. And that is what all my poems strain towards. Sometimes if it's a narrative poem, one of the early poems, it, they're strained towards that simply in terms of beauty. But often now it's more obvious that that is what they're doing. That's what they're reaching towards. And I mean, one of the things I, I did very early on between, between particularly between the violin and the philosophy degree was I worked with uh, writing with poetry in healthcare settings, um, before it became a thing, actually, and discovered very much that working with people who perhaps don't even have great literacy and certainly don't see themselves as in any way consumers of the arts, um, when they're in extremists with poetry that is a real thing, I don't mean mine, I mean poems I brought, people need it and they get it. It's a kind of secular form of faith and which may which sits alongside their other forms of faith if they have them. And it's just the most important work of poetry to me. And so I don't see it as remotely to do with moving away from, you know, the hurly-burly of life. I think here it is as, you know, for the hurly-burly of life. But of course, I also know that actually most people who need such a thing won't access it, which is why I'm very in favour of poems on the underground and, you know, ac public access to poetry. I think if you if you have it there, then people can access it when they need it. At births, marriages, deaths, you know, there it is. I worked a lot in hospice with people, you know, in their last days of life. It's, it's when you need a repository, you need a, a heightened diction, you need there to be such a place to put your feelings and put your meaning. And that's what people have always had in every culture. It's not a, a newfangled thing. And and that is the kind of duty of the poet. And it's not to do with competitions and, and success and so on. But unfortunately, of course, you need those things yeah. in order to be accessible. So, you know, you have this external world, but actually the life of the poem itself is something more sincere, which is one of the reasons I love your poetry so much. It's 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 doing the deep work of poetry. But of course, it also for people to access it, it has to sit inside the apparatus of the poetry world. Of course it does. What other poets, other poets, religious poets, uh, talk about transcendence and talk about something that is beyond life. Mm. Mm. Your poems, and you're calling about meaning, not necessarily about transcendence or the promise of something after, but meaning of the moment as it happens, of the moments as it is contemplated, and of the poem as it is read because of that of that moment. 
Yes. It's like you said, Tiffany, isn't it? Yes. But 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 it's an epiphany of the of the right now, an epiphany of the instant, instead of that epiphany of or also with that epiphany of the transcendence. Yeah. Um, it is not only a promise, it is it is a fulfilled promise in some in some way, because that beauty is happening and that beauty is is there in itself. If well, I if, it would be nice if that were so, wouldn't it? Yes, exactly. You're, I mean, you, you, you put it exactly. Can I read you a poem from the Catch? This is a poem you know yes. very well. The book yes. we've and, worked and, on together. And, and then um, later on, I want to ask you, just because I'm selfish like this, there is one poem that I that I that I want to hear from you, that I think also represents all of these things that we're talking about. But please, please read us from the Catch. So this is arcades. I'm thinking of not shopping arcades, but like a cloister, that series of arches. <clears throat> arcades. In the morning air, voices fill and empty beside the barn under the walnut trees. One continual linked pouring, the way arcades go, linking and pouring, linked and poured. Their speech is one continual discourse, raising hands to gesture, speaking on and on in the shade under the cypress trees. They do not know the morning or the evening when it comes. They only know this speaking that rises and falls in them like song. That is what we know. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the luminous unknowing we were talking about it precisely yes exactly and sometimes that unknowing is not not knowing the thing but just not knowing how to articulate it um, it is and and this is same hesitation is what i what i what i what i saw in these other poems that i'm going to ask you to read it's called the days and it's one of the first poems in the in the anthology. Yes. It's in yes. page sixteen. To help you Thank to you. find it. Yes. Okay. and in this this poem, for me, is <clears throat> a very telling poet poem of your poetics, because it is a poem of foreseeing. The image there is not even that clear. There is the fog there. But maybe the fog is the image, and yeah. and in the poem, the viewer, you know, the speaker is not even trying to go through the fog. He's just saying, "Well, this is this is what it is," mm. and that, in 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 the this is a very slow poem, even though the verses are very short, and that it's like a, a long line. It is still a poem that 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 slows down. Yes. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Mary. Yes. The days. Today a fog lay all day on the wide water, shine and stop, song, mute. I can't see even by clear water whether I should act or is the grace in submission. Should I watch or let the light fall into fog? My duty was to clean the lens, but 
revelation is so loud. It is not altogether clear to me. It is not clear at all what I should do at the river. I, I love yeah. it. Thank you. What you actually said at the beginning about, you know, the sense that I compose poems and that maybe the sound comes first. I think it's also that I don't try and obviously I try and control the language, but I don't try and control the what it is that I'm coming across, you know, what it is that I'm noticing or is being revealed. You know, I don't mean, oh, I take dictation, as some poets rather pretentiously say, you know, from the universe. I don't mean that. But I just mean that if I don't, I don't know how to say something, but I, all I can do is pay attention to what it is that I might be attending to in a way. Um, I And it's almost a... Uh, it's, it is very much like the potter's wheel. It is like, you know, your hands either side of the clay, allowing the clay to rise, but it's the clay that's rising. It's not, you know, it's not your hands. So that's an incomplete image, but it's it's how it is. Whereas, of course, you know, a little while ago in the longer poems of um, Common Prayer, I'm writing about fog and it takes me four pages to say the same thing. And so that is the... That is the distillation, isn't it? Yes. Can you mention now talking about the other poem, the word prayer? And I I don't think it would be wrong to say that many of your poems some sort of, are some sort of secular prayer. Mm, that's um, true. But they are um quiet enough to make the quiet within ourselves and they, they make the space for this uh, revelation to happen within us um, so, so sometimes all I get after the first time I read the poem of yours is a sensation like sometimes I don't know what the poem was trying to say, but I have this decantation, this spiritual decantation. Yes. Everything sets in. And that is not a, a small act of magic, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I wonder how much of that is just a musical effect. I wonder how much it is too, because I think it's not only an effect. I think it's how I experience poems and texts. I mean, I'm very bad at remembering characters' names. I'm very bad at titles. I'm very bad at pinning labels. But I, what I retain of things I read is the movement of thought, the, the feel, the texture, the, the colour, as it were. That's true whether I'm reading philosophy or whether I'm, which I don't do very much now, but, you know, obviously did a lot. Or or whether I'm reading, you know, a poem that I've just come across that's just been published. And I'm I I'm sort of inhabiting a conceptual space, I guess that's what it is. Yeah, inhabiting a movement of thought. Um I mean 
my doctorate, which was um, uh, applied philosophy of language about poetry. I mean, it wasn't a creative writing PhD. It was a philosophy PhD. Um, it was about um, trying to articulate what, <laughs> it's a huge topic, but what it is, what it is that a poem does. What makes a poem a poem? I mean, ridiculously huge topic, obviously, because it was in the context of working in healthcare. It was so a very you know, simple thing. I know, I know. <laughs> What's your elevator pitch? Well, I want to find out what a poem is. Um, but and in the end, of course, what I came down to was a poem is is a poem is a poem. A poem is a poem if it says it's a poem. Um, I mean, not if its author says it's a poem, but if the poem says it's a poem. Um, but the two philosophers I worked with were late Wittgenstein and late Heidegger, and they're both about the materiality of languages. Language as, in fact, not a pane of glass, not innocent, but this medium into which we must plunge in order to think and experience. And that, I think, is the great paradox of writing. That, um, I mean, if I could, I would write poems that were entirely abstract, you know, um, non-representational but of course they would be nonsense poems and I'm not interested in that but you know I am interested in you know a kind of blue arc and a purple you know I yeah it's just how my mind works I guess but because my mind works that way I'm drawn towards a particular purpose for poetry maybe it's that way around the reason why you're saying is because well first I would be very interested in see how you make dialogue the dialogue between these Wittgenstein and, and, and Heidegger whose ideas of poetry are very in language uh, are very different yeah. um and how I don't see it that much in in, in in Wittgenstein but but in Heidegger I do I, I I can see that meaning and spirituality there behind it behind the idea of of the poem but also there's something for me about in Heidegger about um I mean obviously it's massively dodgy in lots of ways but there is something about the idea of the path on a walking towards in a on a path towards meaning or an idea or whatever that's on the way to language for example I mean that sense of um a path as a very not so much as um a surface but as a a space that opens up, a space moving forward that opens up. And I find that very um, capacious way to think about, to think about thought actually, as well as to think about poetry. Um, it's, it, it, it is that sense about of a, um, well, a moving entity in a world, in a way, but it's not an entity. It's um. It's the entity that is possibility in a way. That, that it's it, and it is, and it is uh, the possibility of of communication between two different realms of of I don't know of reality of existence of being. You know. Um, yes. I mean, if you could bring two things together in one line, I mean, that's why we all love Shakespeare, isn't it? You know, I mean, the sonnets, you know, they're doing yes. two things at once, but quite clearly the intellection is there. Um, and I, 
I've worked very hard to not show that mechanism, you know, to hide the cogs and the wheels and the references. It does irritate me, which is not justified in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm unjustified in being irritated, but it does irritate me that therefore my poems can be so, their surfaces look so innocent that it looks like there isn't anything going on, you know, and that's my choice. So, I mean, I maybe I need to be more worldly and make it look more like there's more going on, but, <laughs> um, you know, that, that sense I wanted to produce that absolute sort of not show the effort which is a very english thing actually you know don't you don't show the effort you just kind of um going back it's going back to the 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 infinite bow that we were talking you know it is there is this this huge effort to make this continuum uh, look smooth yes Um, and i noticed i do it with prose too but obviously with poetry all the stakes for that are much higher do you think that this has increased in you and in your craft with time? Yeah, like I do. I think I've trying definitely... to make it look more simple with time. Yeah, I am definitely. Yes, I definitely. I think, I think it's not an unusual progression that when you're a young poet, you, um, you know, you stand on your hands. You, you know, you are you're perfectly sincere, but you are much more virtuous. Ah, oh, there's this we can do. We can do this. We can do, you know, and it's, and, and it's true also of, um, you know, young people's novels too, that, you know, they can be very virtuoso. And then at the other end, which I hope I'm not at, there's the late great where the kind of, some, it seems as only a finger twitches and yet something profound, some profound mark is made, you know, late Miwash, for example, late Beethoven okay he's more than lifting a finger but you know the late great works where everything extraneous late Picasso everything extraneous has gone away it's just got a line and it is absolute has absolute mastery it has absolute knowing you know that obviously is that's where I'd love to travel towards so I'm not saying I am but I mean that would be my that's what I admire when I was young I admired the excitement and so on um what I don't want to become is a boring middle generation, you know, writer who, yeah, I think the one thing a poem must never be is boring, you know, who is, who is worthy, but dull, who is, um, there's nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing right with it. That has to be the bite of the special, you know. Um, but then taking but, risk. Sorry, a risk, um, exactly, due to risk, exactly. Risk is risk is difficult, and and it, and and I think that it could be even more difficult for for a person that has the level of success that you have. You know. Well, you I think we were talking about it earlier. Once, once you've had some, you know, it's very the world has been kind to you. Yes, you you what do you do? And there is a sincerity about your relationship with your readers, and there's also a sincerity about your relationship with yourself, and. I I also notice, I notice sort of the generation above me, how they go in and out of fashion. So I notice that extraordinary thing where in late middle age, you are in effect no longer, for example, eligible for prizes. It's not that you're not eligible. It's just that you are simply not considered. There's, there's the assumption by the early middle age that kind of, you know, you should be satisfied with what you've got or or in a sense that you have been moved into that position and that that's fine and you 
you are no longer in a way human. You don't need those encouragements. You just carry on being a kind of, I wouldn't say anything as big as an icon or a national treasure, but, you know, along those lines, that kind of, yeah. sort of an institution, a little institution. A relic. Oh, yeah, even worse, a relic. <laughs> um, but, of course, you don't, you know, I myself don't feel that. I feel like I'm still at the beginning. I still feel I don't know anything about life. I'm still trying to figure it all out. And I assume that, you know, well, I can see it in those of my friends who are older. I mean, they that's how they are too. If you if you let yourself ossify, if you kind of close yourself off from meaning and from the world, then you probably do feel complacent and established and that you know what you're doing and you're going to just churn out more of the same for the rest of your life. And people do. But the people whose work interests me are the people who go deeper, go further. You know, they might go further in the sense of suddenly changing voice again, but they often just go deeper. I was thinking of asking you for advice to young writers um, to finish this podcast, but I think you just did. Um, when talking about this sincerity to your readers and this honesty to yourself, I think that that this this note of, of uh, knowledge and, and, and wisdom is is a good way to to end this podcast by me saying thank you so much. Thank you so much, Manuel. It's always such a pleasure to talk poetry with you. Every and time we have a closer. Yes. yes. Let's continue. Um, we we will continue talking, Fiona. Um I am very glad and, and very proud that this is the last episode of Inside the Writer's Head and that it was you, the poet that I so much read and and admire. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I really hope that the American audience gets even closer to your poems, even, even closer to you and to all of the beautiful clarity and this luminous uh, wisdom of, of your poems. Thank you. Thank you so much, Manuel. And what a privilege to end this wonderful series you've been hosting, curating. This has been Inside the Writer's Head. We hope you'll keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. The Writer in Residence program is made possible through the support of the Library Foundation. Learn more about the program and upcoming events at chpl.org WIR. Thanks for listening. Thank you.